Our passage this morning comes from Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20 verses 2 through 13. It's in the bulletin. It'll be up on the screen here if you want to follow along. Now, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place for grain or figs or vines or even pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the lands that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Holy Spirit, we pray that by your power you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. We don't just want information, we want transformation. Would you grow our hearts in faith, in maturity, in joy, and in hope? by the power of your word, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're nearing the end of our sermon series on the life of Moses. And remember, the book of Exodus describes how God brought the people out of slavery in Egypt up until they arrive at Mount Sinai and receive the law. And in the book of Numbers that we're in now describes the events from when they leave Mount Sinai until the people come to the border of their new home in the promised land. And so last week we looked at a story from Numbers 11. This morning we're in Numbers 20, but it's important to know that there was a major plot point that happens in between those chapters. In Numbers 14, Moses sends spies ahead of the people into the promised land and they come back and say, sorry, dude. Not gonna happen, not a chance. The inhabitants of the land are too powerful and too prosperous for us to go in. We can't do it. Only two people, Caleb and Joshua, say if God is with us, we can do it. The rest of the people say, no way, Mose. And that, and that <laughs> sorry, dad joke. <laughs> and as a result, God declares that every adult from the Exodus generation, okay, every adult that came out of Egypt will die in the wilderness instead of going into the promised land. He says it will be their children and their grandchildren who go in, but not them. Now importantly, and this, okay, this is very important for our big idea 
this morning, so pay attention. Importantly, God does not say to them, because of your continued sinning, I'm done with you. You keep on messing up, disrespecting and rejecting me. You've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are not good Christians, so I'm out. I'm revoking my covenant commitment to you. God does not say that, okay? What he does say is your continued sin patterns and your unwillingness to address them has real painful consequences in this life, even including a disappointing death in the wilderness. That's important for our big idea this morning. It's not because of your continued sinning, God has altogether given up on you. But it is because of continued unaddressed sin patterns in your life, you're experiencing real consequences, including frustration and failure in this lifetime. So between Numbers 14 and Numbers 20, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. They basically just go around in circles until all of the Exodus generation dies and then we come to our story in Numbers 20 this morning. Now, let me ask you a question. For those of you who have been here for a good portion of this Moses series, did you get a sense of deja vu as we were reading this story? Did this sound familiar? The people come to a place called Meribah, and there's no water, and so they complain and quarrel against Moses and by proxy against God, but God mercifully provides streams of water flowing out from a rock. This story is very similar to one that we read about a month ago in Exodus 17. And in fact, it's so similar that some critical scholars say that this is just a copy and paste job. That a later editor forgot that this story was already in the Bible somewhere and wrote it in again. Right, it's like chat GPT plagiarism, but Old Testament style, okay? And I think that argument is flawed for a number of reasons. And and in fact, most of the arguments about the Bible having errors uh, and sort of being later redacted and messed up by later editors, those those arguments, they sound convincing on the surface and they're pretty weak. If you want to talk more about that, I would love to talk to you more about that. But I think in this case, the argument is flawed for a few reasons. But most importantly, I think that that argument is naive about the human condition. It's naive about the human condition because you and I know that it is very possible and in fact all too common to find ourselves in a sin predicament where we think, how did I end up here again? Has that happened to you? Have you ever struggled with something that you knew was damaging, that you knew was dangerous, something where you promised yourself, I'll never do that again? only to find yourself doing the same thing again just a little while later? Or are you aware of a generational pattern of sin in your family of origin, something that so many of your relatives struggled with that you start to think, is this genetic? And you say to yourself, I will not be like them, but then a year later or 10 years later or 20 years later, you are struggling with a variation of the very same sin. Personal sin struggles and generational sin struggles that are so recurring and similar that an outside observer might think that it was a copy and paste. Here's the first bit of good news for us this morning. The Bible has a category for for those sorts of lifelong and even multiple lives long sorts of struggles. 
God's not naive or surprised or scandalized by our capacity to struggle with the same thing over and over again for a very long time. In our passage this morning, we see that the people of Israel had generational problems with demandingness and doubt and religious entitlement, but we also see that Moses personally had a lifelong anger issue. Do you remember Moses' first big sin back at the beginning of Exodus? In a moment of anger, in a fit of rage, he killed someone. And in the intervening years and decades, even as Moses has grown in so many ways, he seems to have an unresolved anger problem. He gets intensely angry at the people and at God over and over again. And finally, his anger here in Numbers 20 results in him losing out on the promised land. What do we do with that? What can we say about these sorts of lifelong sin struggles? That's what we're going to consider for a few minutes this morning. Now, the old-timey word that Christians used to use for this was besetting, besetting. How should we think about our besetting sins, those long-term struggles that we seem to have a special inclination toward, maybe even an addiction to? Two points this morning. How do we battle our besetting sins, and how can we have hope in the midst of that difficult battle? How do we battle these sorts of besetting sins, and how do we have hope in the midst of that battle? Okay, first of all, how do we do battle against our ongoing, recurring sin struggles? Okay, to begin with, we need to acknowledge that there is, in fact, a battle to be fought. God calls us to the strategic offensive against the recurring patterns in our lives. And that's important to say because it's become an unpopular idea in the modern world and even arguably in the modern church. Okay, those who call themselves followers of Jesus are called to go on the strategic offensive against besetting sins in their lives. Romans 8.13 is the theme verse here. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right? If by the Spirit you strategically put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will find true life. Now the if in that verse means that all Christians are called to this battle, but not all Christians heed the call. Not all Christians respond to this call, to the strategic offensive. Other than the Bible, the most famous book ever written about going on the strategic offensive against sin is a book called The Mortification of Sin by the theologian John Owen. And here's what he wrote about Romans 8.13. And notice, he uses that word mortify because he's reading from the old kind of King James Bible where Romans 8.13 says, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Here's what Owen wrote. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You're being crucified with Christ virtually and you're being alive with him does not excuse you from this work. Now, all of us struggle with varying temptations, but what we're talking about here is paying attention to being brutally honest about recurring sin patterns in our lives. Okay, so every one of us in this room struggles with sexual temptation in some way, okay? But some of you are looking at pornography regularly, and God calls you to fight back against that sin. 
Every one of us in this room struggles with self-medicating in different ways, but some are alcoholics or addicts, and God calls you to fight back against that sin. Every one of us here deals with arrogance, anger, and anxiety in different ways, but each of us has particular personal ingrained habits in those areas, and God is calling you to confront them with honesty and courage and hope. In my early 20s, I struggled not just with occasional sexual temptation, but with patterns of pornography use and seeking sexual gratification in sinful ways. And I am thankful that God and other Christians reminded me that I was made for something more, something better, and invited me to fight, to go on the offensive. And more recently, God and other Christians have pointed out to me in different ways that I am consistently sinful in the way that I receive criticism and constructive feedback. They've talked to me about how quickly I get defensive and angry and cold when people, and even people who love me, point out a way that I've hurt them or an area where I need to grow. But God and they are inviting me to go on the strategic offensive, to fight back against defensiveness so that I can rest and rejoice in Jesus more fully. And that's how this works. By the way, okay, if you commit to this battle, you sort of get like the low-hanging fruit, easy stuff in like the early years of doing this, and then you get to the much more deeply rooted and complicated stuff. Later on in life, it's like your reward for fighting one sin is to find like a more kind of nuanced and kind of sticky sin below the surface, so have fun. Um, (laughs) This morning, (laughs) if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, Can you be brutally honest about the besetting sins in your life and can you hear God's call to go on the offensive, to fight back? Now, stop right there. Some of y'all, maybe all of y'all are like, okay, Matt has been on sabbatical for one week and Trip has already gone full Puritan. (laughs) This is gonna be a long and painful summer, okay? I feel very conscientious and even afraid of the fact that talking seriously about deeply rooted sin struggles in our lives might induce shame for many of us in here this morning. I don't want to cause shame in anyone here, but what I want doesn't really matter that much. What does matter, and if you only take one thing from this sermon, hear this loud and clear, okay? What matters the most is that if you have put your faith in Jesus, for your forgiveness and your righteousness, then God, your Father, doesn't harm an ounce of shame towards you. Grab onto that, hold onto that, hear that loud and clear. Jesus is not at all ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. And your Father isn't ashamed to call you his beloved daughter or his son with whom he's well pleased. The key to going on the offensive against sin is the second that you acknowledge that there is a battle to be fought, you remember the gospel. You remember Jesus. For every one look that you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. And before you go into the battle, armor your soul with the gospel. This is the gospel, okay? Because Jesus has already done everything necessary to make you right with God, and because God has claimed you as his beloved child, There is nothing that you could ever do or not do to make him love you less. Let me say that again. Because Jesus has done everything necessary to make you completely and perfectly right with God, 
And because God loves to call you his daughter, his son, there is nothing that you could do in this life or not do to make him love you less, okay? The only footing from which we can sustainably fight against sin for the long haul is our unassailable, irrevocable righteousness in Jesus. Shame can be a powerful short-term motivator, but there is no such thing as sustainable, hopeful change on the basis of shame. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is, is Hebrews 12, one through two. I've been thinking a lot about these verses lately. Those verses say, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now what those verses say is the key to fighting the good fight, the key to running the race with endurance is to keep looking to Jesus over and over and over again. And I think that one of the main things that Jesus wants to teach us is to despise shame in our lives. I've been captivated by that little phrase, despising the shame. What does that mean? I think what that phrase entails is that shame is one of the things and maybe the main thing that will keep us from the life that Jesus wants us to live. And so the key to moving forward each day, to taking a little step forward each day, is to remember that Jesus hated shame so much that he did everything necessary to destroy it. Because of Jesus, every potential cause of shame in our lives is washed away, and we are called to despise shame as much as he does. And the key to fighting against deeply rooted sin struggles is to do so with brutal honesty, but without any shame. God does not feel any shame towards you, and so despise and reject that shame when you feel it bubbling up inside of you. That is essential for fighting patterns of sin in our individual lives, and it might even be more crucial for confronting generational sins. You have to repeatedly retell your story in light of the gospel in light of the grace and the love and the hope of Jesus. Don't let shame tell your story to you. Let Jesus tell your story. Now thirdly, we talk about this one all the time here, so I'll keep this one short. If you want to go on the strategic offensive against besetting sins in your life, you have to tell someone else about it. You have to be vulnerable not just with God, but with other people. Some of you this week need to send a text or set up a lunch with a friend to tell them about something that you've been struggling with. And here's the tricky part, okay? They might not handle it well. <laughs> when you tell them about your sin, they might flinch. Right? I hope that they won't, but they might, okay? If you open up to someone else about a sin struggle in your life and their response stirs up shame in you, that has as much to do with them not yet being fully attuned to the grace of Jesus as it does with your sin. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're the wrong person to talk to or that you can't trust them. It just means that they need mercy for receiving your confession imperfectly in the same way that you need mercy for the thing that you're confessing. 
You have to be more rooted in how God sees you than even how your brothers and sisters in Christ see you. But important side note, the more that you confess your sins to other people, relying on the grace of Jesus for your forgiveness, the better that you will get at receiving the confessions of other people without flinching. Now, lastly, to go on the strategic offensive against sin and to keep on fighting, you have to remember that the Holy Spirit is even more committed to your victory than you are. The Holy Spirit is infinitely more committed to your sanctification than you are. He is relentlessly committed to your healing and your holiness and your joy in your life. And that word sanctification, that just means the Holy Spirit expanding, stretching your heart's bandwidth to enjoy the holiness of God, to draw near to God and enjoy him. And so this invitation to fight intersects well with our Pentecost Sunday reading this morning. God has given us his spirit to give us courage and comfort and strength for the ba- battle. Here's John Owen again. The Holy Spirit is the great sovereign of the mortification of indwelling sin. He only is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without him are for naught. He is the great efficient cause. He causes us to grow, thrive, flourish, and abound in those graces which are contrary and destructive to indwelling sin itself. If you remember the first story of Meribah back in Exodus 17, maybe you notice that one of the differences between these two stories is that the first time around, God tells Moses to strike the rock with his staff, but this time he tells Moses just to speak to the rock. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's because the rock represents Jesus. It is a pre-symbol, a prefiguration of Jesus, and Jesus only had to die one time to save us from sin completely and irrevocably. But the way that we receive all of the ongoing, overflowing benefits of Jesus' salvation is by asking for the Spirit's help over and over again every day. By speaking to the Spirit. The way that you depend on the Spirit for strength in this battle is to talk to Him, to pray, to ask. Ask the Spirit to show you where and how you're called to fight. Ask him to give you the courage to be honest with yourself and with other people. Ask him to remind you of the good news of the gospel with a specific word from the Bible. And ask him to give you the strength for today to fight the good fight, to run the race with endurance. The Holy Spirit loves to answer those prayers. Let me end with this, okay? Two things worth considering. We move on to our second point here, the point of hope. Two things worth considering. First of all, does does this story seem a little bit unfair to Moses, to you? I mean, this guy has been through a lot, okay? Like, he, he literally got put in a basket and sent down the river when he was a baby, right? And he confronted a violent empire and a world leader on behalf of God and he has been leading an obstinate family through the wilderness for decades. And just like that, he's barred from the promised land. And second, and relatedly, is this fair to us? Let's ask that question with some honesty before the Lord. Is this fair to us? What God is calling us to is a lifelong, difficult battle against sin, 
a battle that will include many setbacks and stumbles and discouragements and failures. Until Jesus comes back, all of us in this room, and unless Jesus comes back, all of us in this room will die still struggling against unconquered sins in our life. And that is a tough calling. That is a tough reality. And so what I want to end with this morning is hope. There was hope for Moses, and there's hope for us. And that hope is found in an ever-patient mediator and counselor and friend. Do you know that the word for, the, for patience in the Bible, it used to be translated in the old days, and what it literally means is long-suffering. Right? The Lord loves to put up with us and more than put up, put up with us, to love us and to suffer with us for a long, long time. He is an ever-patient God. Moses was the mediator between the people of Israel and God, and he was an imperfect mediator. And so his patience was limited, and he was prone to fits of anger and shame and despair. But Moses had a mediator that was endlessly patient with him, a friend who never got tired of him and, in fact, liked him very, very much a counselor who stuck with him to the end, and you have the same mediator. I mean, think about it. There is no one like Jesus who simultaneously says with all of his heart, the person that you are right now, I love you and I like you. And if you didn't change a bit for the rest of your life, I would still love you and like you for all eternity. And at the same time, he says, I am relentlessly committed to your transformation. I won't leave you where you are. I have something better for you. Glory, beauty, holiness, infinite life. There's no one else like that. At the end of his life, Moses saw the promised land from a distance And when he closed his eyes in death, the next thing that happened is that he woke up in the real promised land. Moses was really barred from a symbol of the promised land before he entered the real promised land and walked into the arms of his savior and friend. And at the end of your life, when you close your eyes in death, you'll wake up in the promised land too. And Jesus will show you how every effort to fight against sin in this life was well worth the eternal reward that you'll enjoy with him forever. Don't try to wrap your mind around the lifelong battle that you're called to fight and then ask God for a little bit of hope and a little bit of help. That doesn't work. Instead, ask God by the power of his spirit to fill your mind and to fill your heart with the enormous, extravagant, eternal hope that you have and give you massive help and then take one little step each day. That's what you're called to. That's what you're invited to in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word includes honest, difficult stories. Lord, that you are not naive from the difficulty of this life, and you don't try to hide it from us or to deceive us about it. You invite us to a battle, but it is a difficult battle. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would give us honesty and courage and hope to engage in the strategic offensive against the sins in our lives each day. And even this week, would you help people in this church connect with one another in honesty 
and in vulnerability about the way that you are calling us to fight together. And I pray that we would stand on a place of grace without shame and great hope of the place that you are bringing us to, of the promised land that you are bringing us home to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.